Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Yahoo Sports NBA Podcast, hosted by Chris Mannix. From interviews. Let's bring in John Wall. He's Reggie Miller. Bring in Eric Spolstra. To the latest NBA news. To insights you won't get anywhere else. Rioting is bad. You shouldn't riot. Past episodes of the podcast can be downloaded in the iTunes Store and Google Play. Why wouldn't you go back? Subscribe and leave a rating or comment. Here he is. Speaking of guys putting their foot in the road. Chris Mannix. Yes. All right, my guest this week, uh, she's kind of a big deal. You see her on the Nets broadcast. Uh, if you are into virtual reality, you can see her on the TNT VR broadcast. She's Sarah Kustak joining me in studio once again. What's up, Sarah? Chris, thanks for having me. You are the only person to call me a big deal. Well, and I put it in the rundown. <laughs> I said in the guest line in the rundown, I said, Sarah, big deal, Kustak. I'm, I'm hoping like that name sticks. there was a touch of sarcasm behind that. I yeah. chuckled when I read it. Do you? Did you? Okay. Well, I, mean, I, I could be being serious. I might not. Um, two things I want to ask you before we jump in. Your first year doing the color with the Nets. Give me your your assessment of how it went. Did you enjoy it? Was it fun? Was it good experience? All that. It was beyond fun. And going in, and, and I appreciated you having me on before I got the season underway. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I was going to enjoy it. I knew I was going to love it. I, I was excited because I was having an opportunity to do something I was passionate about would be a challenge. It exceeded every expectation I had for how much I would absolutely love it on a day-to-day basis. And um, 
a big part of that, I would say, goes to our, our crew and the truck and our great producer, Frank DeGrace, and especially the guys I got to work with in, in Ryan Rucco and Ian Eagle, the play-by-play men who I believe are two of the best in the country. So they, I rode their coattails all season <laughs> long. Um, so th- that made for an easy adjustment to me. But but uh, in short, it was, it was absolutely off the charts. And I feel so thankful to have been able to do that. So you're back next year? Is that confirmed? That's, hey, mean? they they haven't told me I'm gone okay. yet. So All right. there you go. Per uh, per contractual agreement, they're stuck with me for All next right, we year. We like to break a little news here on the podcast every <laughs> once in a while. Kustok back. That's the headline on, uh, on Yahoo starting tomorrow. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is is the the VR stuff you do with TNT. I have never actually put on the goggles to experience that. Have you actually done? Did you? Go through a trial run there before you did it? No. Well, pri- I mean, in the truck prior to yeah. the first game that we did, which was game two of the Cleveland-Indiana Pacers series was the first game in which we called. Uh, I did alongside Kevin Ray. I Until I got there, I had never actually put on the headset to experience it. And while we call the games, and, and I was very naive to how this went, so I wasn't even certain how we call the games. We do not actually wear the headset like uh, Reggie Miller had put on during, <laughs> during the TNT. There was a lot of confusion of, okay, how does this you know work? You know, Sarah, if you were wearing that headset during a game, I was at, I would have <laughs> found you i would have taken those pictures and i'd open immediate post it would have been never ending uh but i didn't even know we were on a we're on a you know conference call prior to this happening and talking about the games and going through stuff and we are maybe 20 25 minutes in the call and i'm like okay i I gotta ask this because i really don't understand and i don't know how well that went over they're like all right who who (laughs) are we sure we want her coming to call the games but no but from our perspective with with the truck the way it's produced how we're in the arena and and calling the games as you would watching the game everything is the same from our perspective Mm -hmm. but i had the opportunity um kevin and i both did to put on a headset and watch a previous game that was called throughout the regular season. And I'll tell you what, it is cool to see because you feel like you are in the action. And from an analyst perspective and how you break down games, you can show and see to the viewer so many different angles, you know, what, what the guy with the ball is doing, what's the weak side defender doing, and, and look at plays from a variety of different perspectives, ways. It, it's And you can look at what's happening on the side of the floor, the coaches and the side conversation with some of them, some of the players, the atmosphere, the arena. So it, it was um, it was absolutely fascinating to see the technology and I'm curious to see how it continues to progress because it is something that's very unique for people if they want to get a different look and a different perspective during an NBA game. Yeah, I'm curious to see if it takes off to, I mean, it's all about like the kids, right? Like is the, are the 20 somethings going to want to start watching sports with VR? Um, I, I probably won't just because like, you're not I'm, still 20. You're not I'm, still 20. I'm not, I'm not still. I, I'm also breaking <laughs> news there. Um, uh, I'm not in my 20s anymore, but uh, I'm probably still going to look for, to watch it on the giant, the biggest flat screen I can possibly find. But I, I wonder if, you know, well, if the, in, in, in not to cut you, I wonder too, is like a complimentary. I'll probably do that my often show. throughout the source yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of this, but is, is we now see people watching a game on television and you got Twitter, you got your, your phones. And so you're like, what are people tweeting about? What's the conversation? To me, it seems like an opportunity for kind of a complimentary way of watching a game. You may not sit there in your headset and watch the entirety of a game, but would you toss it on to get different looks at the, I, I don't know. It'll, it'll be, it'll be fun. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that works out. All right. Before we get into the, um, 
uh, what's going on in the games this week. I do want to ask you about what we saw now that Oklahoma City season is is over. And, and the Thunder, uh, last season, you know, 47, 48 wins, get to the first round of the playoffs, they get beat. They revamp the roster. They add some big names. Almost the exact same, you know, finish for this season. When you look at what Oklahoma City's season is and what it was, I mean, was it a, a decent season? Was it a disastrous season? How do you you just sort of assess what Oklahoma City did this year? I don't know if disastrous is the right way to put it. One thing, I mean, I give so much credit to Utah in that. So I think there's kind of two sides to this coin on how you look mm-hmm. at it specifically with Oklahoma City. Utah is a team that I have been so impressed with what they've been able to do, how they were able to win that series. Of course, Donovan Mitchell, the player we've seen him grow into, what Quinn Snyder has done with that team. So taking no disrespect away from the team that Utah is for Oklahoma City to be bounced in the first round when you have the reigning MVP in Russell Westbrook when you have an all-star player in Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, what they thought he would bring to the table. That to me would be very tough to stomach. Mm. Um, And and so I am curious to see though how, because for as many people that, and and you may be one of them, I don't don't know, Chris, but that assume there's no chance Paul George return. I'm curious. Like I'm curious to see what that series, the moments and flashes of which we saw the type of team that we expected, the way in which we expected them to play, if that is enough to have a foundation to build upon to Paul Paul George for as much as he talked about. I know in his press conference uh, after the season talked about his first year. I know a lot of people pointed to the fact that he keep, kept bringing up and used selectively his first year in mm-hmm. Oklahoma City, if that makes a difference. But to have a player with the talent of Russell Westbrook and not get past the first round to to me is you can't deem that as a success. Yeah, I I think it's pretty close to a disaster, honestly. I mean, I think that you I don't, I mean, you can't pretend to creep into Paul George's head and, and know what he's feeling. Does he like the lifestyle of Oklahoma City? He is a laid back guy that seemed to enjoy Indiana. Uh, while he was there, he's often said, "Just give me a lake to fish in, and I'm right. a pretty happy guy." Right. Um, but did he like playing alongside Russell Westbrook? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, how does Carmelo uh, fit into all this? I did find the language, like you said, interesting. You know, he kept saying his first year, and you know, if he walks away from Oklahoma City, he's probably going to leave some money on the table uh, because of the the number of uh, years Oklahoma City could offer him uh, in a long term deal. So I, I don't know what 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 this all means, but. Uh, conventional wisdom says if they didn't make a run deep into the playoffs, it, it was probably going to be a negative for for keeping Paul George. And if they lose Paul George, they don't have another uh, another card to play here. No, like they they, they don't have it. the the Oladipo's and the Sabonis's to deal. They don't have draft assets that they can move. They if Paul George walks, they, they're struggling to make the playoffs next year. And, and as good as Sam Presti is, there's really nothing he can do about it. No. And so that becomes a question. I don't know what makes, and I don't know if a lot of people, what makes Paul George tick? Does he care about the money? Does he care about, is it title or bust? Does he care about balance and life balance and where he is, the environment he's around? You know, how much did he mesh with and not just on the court but off the court with Russell Westbrook I mean those are all the questions that we can look at things and discuss at length about he has his best chance of winning going here they didn't get you know to the to the Western Conference Finals so that may I I don't know how that ranks in what Paul George 
puts on the table in terms of how he's going to make his decision. The other variable in this is Carmelo, and, and Carmelo has that player option for $28 million. I'd be astonished if he didn't pick that up. I mean, you're just not going to get that money uh, on the open market. But Carmelo's exit interview was interesting, too, because you know when sort of asked about a bench role, he, he once again sort of sniffed at it and you know made the point that he's sacrificed a lot uh, since being in Oklahoma City, which he has, by the way. I mean, he, he agreed to be a power forward. He, he adjusted his game a couple of times during the year to try to fit in to what they were doing, but he, he's not interested in coming off the bench, and that's a problem for Oklahoma City because I think Carmelo, who's I think going to be 34 this summer, like it, Carmelo has reached the point in his career that he's either reserve or, or maybe he's nothing. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me, Sarah, if next year Carmelo you know, picks up the option, plays for Oklahoma City, if he goes into free agency in the summer of 2019 with the same attitude that he has now about being a bench player, he could be out of the league. Like, I don't know a team that, you know, would give him real money to come in as a starter. Maybe you say you can compete for a starting spot, but whatever team, at least a contending team, whatever team he would go to would want assurances that he'd be willing to accept whatever role is there for him. So as, as crazy as it might sound, I, I think next year we, we could be looking at Carmelo's last year in the league if I, things don't I, change. I don't think that sounds crazy at all. And you can't tell me if, if you got a player like Dwayne Wade that could come to Cleveland and be willing and whether he was truly okay with or not, but willing to sacrifice mm -hmm. coming off the bench and felt like, okay, at whatever point that was best for the team. Like to me, then Carmelo, what are your priorities? If you, if, if your coach and your team and your teammates believe that this may be the best option for the team to win. Hey, we need you to come in and anchor a second unit. We need that. We we don't think you're as productive and how things fit in our lineup. I would question, what are your goals? Like, what is, is this a reason why you have not been on a team that's contending for a championship? You, you are a, you know, a elite caliber player, but look at where you're at in your career and, and look at what your priorities want to be. And if you came to Oklahoma City claiming that you want to do it because you believe you can contend for a title, well, then you got to do what it takes to do what's best for your team. And with that, that shows to me a lot about your true colors and character if you're saying this at this point in the year. The crazy part of it all is that, just like Dwayne Wade, if Carmelo Anthony said, I'm okay being a reserve, he could probably tack three years onto his career because I think there's value in Carmelo Anthony as a sub, just like I think there's value in Dwayne Wade, as we saw uh, for Miami at the, uh, you know, down the stretch in the postseason in being a, a reserve. I, I get it that from... Uh, a star player's perspective, it's got to be tough to accept that you're, you're not a starter and you're not a star. I mean, these guys like Carmelo and Wade, they were probably the best players on whatever court they stepped on or one of the best players uh, for as long as they can remember. And, and now you're kind of saying you got to sit behind some young kid, a Jeremy Grant or, or something like that. I, I understand how that doesn't sit well, but man, yeah, just like Allen Iverson probably regrets not changing uh, his game late in his career, a guy like Wade and Carmelo, these two... It's either play for three more years or maybe be out of the league if you don't change the way you think. I, I hope that Carmelo is surrounded <clears throat> by the type of people, and, and you know he does within his circle, but that can try to get him to understand that mm -hmm. because I think that's an important aspect for him on how his career is going to continue or how it's going to end and how he's going to be remembered because he's done a lot of really special things in his NBA career, of course, his Olympic career. But I, I think now this is a very pivotal point for him and how he continues to close things out.
just to put a button on uh, on Oklahoma City, if Paul George walks, is it a referendum on Russell Westbrook? Because that would be the second, and I don't know how you'd want to gauge Paul George, top 15 player, top 20. I mean, he certainly didn't look like one in the, the, the playoffs, but he, he's been one for a while. That would be, let's call it elite, the second elite player to leave you know, a team that, that Russell Westbrook was on in the last three years. W- would you look at that as being a referendum on Westbrook? I struggle with this. I struggle heavily with this because I love Russell Westbrook. I love the manner in which he plays. I love his attitude, his mentality, um, what we see out of him. But man, with his type of talent and the way in which he's able to dominate a game to not be able to walk away with the type of wins and victories when needed and with the personnel often as his disposal. And now with a player like Paul George, it's tough not to in some ways look at that as an indictment of of him and how he plays. And um, and not even necessarily, if Paul George does walk, it's not saying that he doesn't want to play next to Russell Westbrook or of course all the things discussed when Kevin Durant left. But guys figuring out a way to play with him or him figuring out a way to play with other guys. And we saw it over the course of the season as he continued to try and figure out how to who play and mesh and still be the Westbrook that we know, but also incorporating some other players. But I, I don't think that would stop other players from wanting to play with him, but it's it's hard to imagine how you continue to find players with the type of talent needed to build a chemistry and be able to produce the way they need to do on the floor um, with Westbrook, given what we have seen. He took 82 shots in the last two games of that series. Just an astonishing number. And and look, he, he carried them, you know, in that, that game... Uh, was a game five and in, in Oklahoma City, and you give him credit for that. But you have to wonder if the number of shots he took in that game six, if he took a little few, a few fewer, maybe uh, if it was more of a playmaker. I don't know. Would things have changed? Who knows? But that's going to be interesting to watch uh, this offseason. All right, let's talk about LeBron and just another unbelievable game seven for LeBron. 45 points in the clincher against Indiana. You, you were at some of those games, Sarah. In every way, I think Indiana was the better team than Cleveland, outside of having the best player on the floor. Indiana was the younger team, the less experienced team, but they weren't intimidated at all. And if you look back on it, if you know a break or two here or there, and that series could have been over in five games in, uh, in favor of the Pacers, but it goes to seven, and LeBron has just an unreal performance, 45 points, 65% uh, from the floor, 66% from three, went to the free throw line 15 times, made 11 of them. I mean, he just just another great game by LeBron. What did you think of the uh, the performance by LeBron and, and the the series itself for Cleveland? Uh, LeBron was mind-blowing. <clears throat> like watching what he was able to do <clears throat> with the way in which Indiana was playing. I think the biggest point you bring up is that Indiana had no fear. Like they they they're an excellent team, uh but that fear factor that sometimes LeBron and LeBron teams have they weren't intimidated at all so the fact that LeBron 
single-handedly put that Cleveland team on his back in the type of shots he made, the timely shots he made, the the brilliance in which he knew when to try and incorporate his teammates, when to build some confidence, how he was playing with them and facilitating along with just flat out taking over games. I mean, to me, I, I'll go back and watch those games again just to appreciate the magnificent way in which LeBron played. But aside from that, like it's when you look at the numbers and, and how Indiana was able to really manhandle them in so d- many different categories on the court, it's, it still amazes me that the Cavaliers ended up winning that series. Because in terms of fast break points, second chance points, the, the field goal percentages, how Indiana manufactured a lot of their offense, what they did defensively, um, I don't, it, it doesn't match up to Cleveland ending up winning that series. And at the end of it, it was just LeBron James and the way in which he was able to be so effective and efficient. And, even, and you mentioned the free throw, like the things, that areas in which LeBron has struggled, like he shot just under 82% from the line. So he mm-hmm. he was doing some of the things which in way if you'd even call them weaknesses, but areas in which he maybe wasn't as strong. He shot over 35% from the three-point line um in hitting clutch shots when he needed to. So I I was not impressed with Cleveland to say the least. I was not impressed with the Cavaliers and where they're at. And you look at all the given changes in the lineups and the rotations and still trying to figure out exactly who's going to show up. But LeBron James, man, I mean, if he wants to continue to build on his legacy, he sure did that in this first round. Uh, yeah, I mean, is this series showed me that as great as LeBron can be, him just having a singularly great game or being singularly great isn't necessarily enough to win a series because they don't win this game if Tristan Thompson isn't dusted off from the the recycle bin and put back out there to for the first time in the series to play big minutes and, <laughs> and shape the team in that first quarter. They don't win unless you know Kevin Love shows up finally in Game Seven when LeBron's off the floor and he makes some big shots to swell that lead uh, in the fourth quarter. I mean. Indiana made a lot of mistakes, I thought. Indiana has uh, what I think is a very simplistic offense. I thought they got way too three-point happy uh, in this series. I thought uh, they should have gone to Sabonis a lot earlier than they did when Miles Turner was out there. So I think Indiana made some mistakes. But this Cleveland team, I mean, even with LeBron playing great, they still almost lost that series. I don't know what... I don't know if Toronto has a mental block with LeBron James, but if they don't, I think Toronto cleans Cleveland's clock in the second round. I don't, I just don't see the Cavaliers, unless, you know, Thompson continues this, Love continues this, but for six of the seven games of the series, Kevin Love was largely like the third best big on the floor sometimes after Sabonis and uh, and Miles Turner. Unless, they, and the same thing with Thompson, he wasn't a factor. Unless the, these guys play to a different level or play to the same level in against Toronto, I think the Raptors are big favorites in this series. Without a doubt. But but you're pointing out, so fine, Kevin Love, let's say he gets back to the love that we know. Tristan Thompson, even if he's given you t- to what, 10 and 10, um, which would be nice. Who, I mean, Toronto is so deep for yeah. as much as we want to talk about a couple of players that you need Cleveland to start producing and in some of the more complimentary players, if you know if Clarkson can start hitting some shots or Hood or if Kyle Korver takes it up a little bit of a nine, I mean, he obviously shot the ball well from three, but if he gives you some more, George Hill, hopefully if he's healthy to be able to play. But 
you start going down the Raptors lineup and what they could do, and now Van Vliet is back, what their second mm-hmm. unit could do. And that's not mentioning the fact LeBron James is absolutely mentally and physically wiped. And I know he, he may be bionic, and I have no doubt he's going to come back in the second round and look fresh from the start. But it was visible. This is worn on him. Those seven games. So when you got a Toronto team that could run out nine, 10, 11 guys in their rotation, it's and give him different looks and different players that that could guard him. Like I, I'm not sure how Cleveland continues to to win any games with LeBron when he, he's already putting up forty some points and he's already giving you triple doubles. So you know, in some of these players that you look that you need a little bit more out of, even if they give you a little bit more, is that enough to match up with the Raptors? So you're right. I, I think it's all about the mental aspect for Toronto. And the, and the Raptors can send waves of bodies at him, too. Yeah. I mean, not one that I think that can be called like a LeBron stopper no, if that even exists. But, but, you know, Ibaka can can do a little. OG Ananobi can do a little. Siakam can do a little. I mean, they they can keep sending these kind of, you know, 6'6 six, six to 6'9 six, athletic, you know, combo forwards out to defend LeBron. You know that Dwayne Casey, who's, who's I think is a terrific defensive mind, and his staff have to have been watching these last few games and you know kind of picking apart some of the ways that Indiana failed that maybe they can succeed. I, I do think, though, Sarah, that Toronto's going to win these two games at home because they're not, they're not the same team on the road. And if you lose one of these two games and give Cleveland home court advantage, you can allow, I think, history to creep into your head a little bit. You know, you can allow the fact that that Cleveland has just owned the Raptors in each of the last two uh, postseasons. So I think these first couple of games uh, for Toronto are just critical. I think absolutely that. I I am interested to see, though, and we talked a lot about uh, Indiana throughout the course of the first round and their game plan of, of pretty much using single coverage on LeBron. They yeah. didn't double him a lot. They didn't leave other guys open. <clears throat> they allowed LeBron to get his points in many ways. And it, it seemed to me like McMillan just, he, he has his principles and how the team plays defense, but also he didn't seem to want to let any, rather than, okay, force some of these supporting players to beat you. He just didn't want them to get rolling at all. He didn't want them to start making some shots and getting confidence, which I think they did a, a solid job of that. I'm curious to see how the Raptors game plan and attack against Cleveland offensively and with LeBron. Do they double him? Do they? They're a team you, you bring up their versatility and length and different bodies they could throw at him. They also could switch a lot. So there's a lot of different things that they could do on that end of the floor to disrupt things. I, I do think game they got over their game one hurdle in that first round against Washington. Does that seep into their heads still? Like, are, are there things, DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, are they going to be mentally tough enough to help lead the team to those first two wins? And I think that changes that changes a lot of things. Uh, we know the Raptors fans and the way that arena is. But but that's where I think some of these guys, which may not have a ton of experience, but some of these bench players, they got swag. They believe. Mm. And I think that aids Lowry and DeRozan in how they can be confident in this series and not, lo- not allow some of those past history with the LeBron and, and Cleveland teams and what they've done to start to creep in. So people ask me this all the time, so I'll, I'll put it to you. D- does this feel like LeBron's last year in Cleveland? Because just like we talked about Paul George, uh, if they had lost that first round series, I think that would have been, been over. I, I just... 
I, I think this postseason is influential in, in, in LeBron's decision-making process at the end of the year. Uh, and if they had lost that first-round series and Thompson had not shown up and Love had played poorly once again, I think that would have been, you know, just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, you know, who knows what can happen? But, you know, you've been around him. I mean, do, do you, does this feel like LeBron's last year in Cleveland? I I don't think LeBron knows. I, I don't know. To me, it, it doesn't. He seems so singularly focused on trying to figure out, like, think about the, the changes that have occurred with this team since the offseason and how many different looks we've had from this roster and different and like that's also why I think a lot of these players and, and we could point to some of the supporting cast of LeBron not producing and being inconsistent and unproven and, and to me it's not so much about the lack of talent but th- these are new guys most of these guys playing with him since the all-star break they've had injuries they've all, had all different sorts of issues throughout the course of the year so it's hard to really figure ever, anything out so I think LeBron has been so focused on figuring out how to even get this team together and to win and what they need to do to try and gel together. And even now at the start of this uh, first round in the playoffs, I'm not sure. I I know it sounds like something you said. I'm not sure he's even thought that far into it. I'm yeah, not sure. I, like when he go when he goes all those cities and you see the billboards and you see people. What like I think he enjoys that. I think he embraces that. I think he likes that. I'm sure when he's playing in L.A. and on the court, he through his mind he's putting himself in this position of okay, what would it feel like next year if I was playing with these guys? What would it feel like if I was in the city? If I'm in yeah. Philadelphia? If I'm in Houston? What would that be like? I, I think he thinks about that and maybe puts himself in that position. I don't think he's gone through the step-by-step of, okay, where is the best fit for me? I don't think he's, I don't think he's gone through that either, but you know, LeBron's history tells me that there's always something at work behind the scenes and, and modern NBA history tells me that, you know, come October, November, we could be reading stories about, you know, a text message chain between LeBron, Paul George and DeMarcus cousins or, or, uh, you know, just, just something crazy that, that we don't hear about, Right now, because you remember 2010, I mean, in 2010, that the, the genesis of that, you know, happened in 2008 when those guys at the Olympics uh, started talking about the possibility of, of playing together. Even in when LeBron came back to Cleveland, that wasn't something that, that necessarily was, uh, you know, decided after the heat season. I mean, the, the seeds were planted inside, you know, with Dan Gilbert about the possibility, uh, long before that. So, I, I think there's, 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 we're going to find out there's something, whatever he decides, whether it's stay or go, we're going to find out that something has been going on over these last I, few months, even a year, that, that, that plays into it. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I bet there's probably 10 different scenarios of that that we could put. Like, I'm sure Chris Paul is, is sending him some text messages. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Embiid has been on him. Like I, you can't I give think... Joel Embiid your phone number. You can't. Joel, <laughs> he, he seems like the kind of guy that would just text at all hours of the day. Maybe you appreciate that. <laughs> put, put him on do not disturb. Yeah. Uh, no, but but I'm sure I'm sure there's all sorts of those things going on, and I bet that uh, I bet LeBron has that in the back of his mind somewhere of all these different scenarios and circumstances. I don't think that with this point he's gotten that much because he knows he can go anywhere and change a franchise. Mm. 
he can go anywhere and be I, I, we we've seen it here and 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 I don't know with LeBron like d- is it important to him to still be in Cleveland does his family like it there do do his wife and kids enjoy the situation that they're in and they're at and the schools it, like they're there to me with LeBron is so many factors that I wouldn't even begin to guess what like w- what he is looking for and also <clears throat> he's so I think too aware of his legacy and how that plays into this decision and where he finishes things off. Oh yeah, of course it's about winning, but I think he probably believes he could be in most places and do that. Like I think he will carefully look at that when he's thinking about if he would decide to make a move and where that would be too. You know what, what's always surprised me is are the number of people that think Philadelphia is a bad fit. Like I hear that all the time. Oh God, that, I would love Philadelphia. Like the, the I, mean, six- I, I have no. I think that would be. This has nothing to do with what I think about what LeBron's thinking. Just me personally. Like to me, that that's exciting. I think that would be awesome. There are people him. out there that say like him and Ben Simmons. Like how would they play together? Ben Simmons is like LeBron light, and I'm like, who cares? Like it's LeBron James. Like he'll find a way to. To, to make it work and you put LeBron on Philadelphia oh. that's the best team in basketball that, that is like next year that's the best team in basketball Absolutely. because Embiid's going to progress Simmons going to progress I think Fultz is going to be okay uh that, that's I mean and hell, they young, might even have a top a lot, 10 pick this year it's, too it's a lot of young guys and we'll yeah. see you know what Philadelphia ends up doing in this post and, and I wonder that too does it matter does it matter in the list we probably could put together a huge list. does it matter what philadelphia does does it matter how far they go does it matter how far houston goes um you know in and those are a handful of teams i mean there's so many on the list but does does he take into account okay they already got this far or if houston let's say ends up winning the final does that change something if philadelphia ends up going to the finals does that change what he thinks about a certain team or if he wants to put himself in that position. So I, I don't know. It, it'll be awesome to see. Yeah. The the Sixers are interesting and, and, and I can sort of use this to transition to the Sixers in Boston because, you know, they have so much young talent, but what's going to define the Sixers and the Celtics and what's I think is going to determine which of those two teams becomes kind of the heir uh, in the Eastern conference to, to, to the Cavs is how their front office manages all this young talent because you can't keep everybody. You know, if you try to, you basically become the Wizards because the Wizards have have these guys under big contracts and they're kind of landlocked. You can't you, you can't add to the roster in any significant way because all your money is tied into your star players. And right now, it's fun to watch Philadelphia. These young guys who, outside of Embiid, are making you know relatively little money. It's fun to watch Boston. Tatum and Brown still on their rookie contracts. But, you know, between Danny Ainge and Brian Colangelo, these guys are going to have to make some hard decisions in the years to come. Because you, in Boston, you've got Marcus Smart hitting for agency this summer. You've got Terry Rozier hitting for agency a year from now. You have to start eventually worrying about Tatum and Brown uh, in the years to come. Same thing with Philadelphia. I mean, they're going to have, Colangelo and Ainge are going to have to make some tough calls to, to keep this team together and build it out in a championship way. Yeah, I, you said it. And to me, and you're around 
the Celtics all the time. So you have an inside look at that organization and potentially what Danny Ainge is thinking and how he's looking at things. But but to me, that's the toughest thing for those from the outside or fan base or when you see different players have to move on, the understanding of the business side of things. And no matter how much you love these players or you see the talent in the upside, um, what you're going to do. And, and with that being said, that's why, not that it makes it any easier, but for the Celtics, having to play the season without Hayward, having to be spend so much time without Kyrie Irving, they've gotten a better look at the type of player some of these guys can be. Would you have had that much of a chance and in what type of role would you seen out of Jason Tatum to see now the escalation of his development in, in his upside, obviously what uh, Brown, Jalen Brown has been able to do or Terry Rozier being put in the position that he has during the playoffs and the type of pressure that come with that. So not that it's a, a good thing. And if you're a Celtics fan, I know you don't like it, but you've at least had more of a picture to see what these guys may be a year, two, three years down the line than you would have if their playing time had been limited at this point. And I know Golden State had has their death lineup out there that is just so you know versatile offensively. Boston next season, if they keep everybody together, uh, they could have, I think, the most potent line, uh, offensive lineup in the NBA because if you can move Tatum to the four for stretches and play Horford at five with Kyrie, with Jalen Brown, with Gordon Hayward, I don't know how you slow a team like that down. Now, you have some problems defensively because physically you're a little overmatched on that front line, but so wasn't Golden State when they played Draymond Green at center. That's going to be a, a, a ridiculous uh, offensive unit. But I wonder, as we head into this offseason, kind of look ahead, um, does Boston keep this group together? Because you've got maybe Kawhi Leonard lurking out there, and we don't know what's going to happen between Kawhi and the Spurs at this point. I I would imagine at some point in the next few weeks, there's some kind of sit-down between Pop and Kawhi, just like there was last summer between Pop and LaMarcus Aldridge, and they figure out if they can get stay on the same page, and they figure out as an organization if they're going to offer him that Supermax deal that I think would be really hard to turn down. But if, if it turns out that that situation is irreconcilable, you've got to look at Boston, right? I mean, we say that about like all the star players that become available, but Boston still has all these assets. They either have a top two or three pick this year if the Lakers pick goes their way, or they've got uh, the Kings pick uh, for next year. It's going to be pretty good. So the Celtics have all these assets, and I know people are falling in love right now with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and you know they're 21 and 20 years old, and, and wow, look what they can be, but... I I wonder how hard a look Boston will take at at Kawhi and 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 how much they'd be willing to dip into their their, I, their I, well of assets. There. I know this is your podcast, but I'm I'm turning this around you since you're okay. since you're there in in Boston. Would you who would you be willing to get? Would you be willing to give up? You know, you put Morris out there, you put a couple, but Rozier and a Tatum or a Brown. Would you be willing to give up those guys for Kawhi? I'd be very gun shy about giving up Tatum in a deal like that because I think Tatum, I think Tatum is Paul Pierce. I I I just think he has that kind of offensive potential. I mean, he's you know scoring twenty in a you know game seven, and he still has has barely scratched the surface on what he can do offensively. He doesn't post up anybody. Um, his mid range game is okay. Uh, his three-point shot was great the start of the season, tailed off kind of in the middle. But th th this guy, the sky's the limit for him offensively. I think offensively, 
Jalen Brown has a little bit of a, a lower ceiling there. So I'd put him in a deal, and I'd put Rogier in a deal too. I mean, I, look, I, we, we talk about you know the ability to you know have a bunch of guys under contract. You know, you've got to make a call on probably Rogier versus Marcus Smart if you're Boston. Like, which one do you take out of those two? So if you can package a couple of players to get one great one in Kawhi, I, I would do it. I just I, Tatum would be the one guy to answer your question that, that I would be. You wouldn't. Uh, I'd be gun shy about giving up. Yeah. With Rozier, do you think this is? And I know, and I believe you have said before, and how much Danny Ainge has loved this kid. Do you think this is the real deal? Do you think this is him playing how he's going to play and continuing to improve what we're seeing now? Oh, I think he's the real deal. I, I think he's he's a genuine starter. Uh, in this league. At the same time, though, if you're deciding between Smart and Rogier for this team, I'd probably take Smart because you're going to have a, a, a dangerous offensive lineup for years to come. I think having a, a elite defensive weapon to come off the bench and play two positions is more valuable to this Boston team. So I, I think Rogier has more value, I think, to another team that might look at him as like an early 20s starter they can groom to, to maybe become an all-star. See, I love, I love Marcus Smart, and I think his versatility defensively and obviously how we can guard multiple positions, he's improved offensively. You can't say enough about those things. Rozier's a good defender. Like in many ways, we talk so much about his offense. Mm -hmm. I don't. Is he that far behind? And and maybe he doesn't have the versatility to guard what Marcus Smart can. Marcus Smart guards fours. Like he he's out there. He's got. But but with Rozier, like his his ability offensively, I. I think sometimes with this league and the way this league is trending and how you play it, like to have a guy that can score and now the way in which he's starting to create for other guys like that, that to me is tough to give up, especially since he it's not like he's a liability on the defensive. I mean, he is a, a very solid defender. He's solid, but I think smart is or can be elite. I think Marcus smart can be the best defensive player at his position. I think he's that good because he combines footwork with physicality, with versatility. Uh, you can put Marcus Smart on anyone from Kristaps Porzingis to, you know, whatever great point guard is out there playing well. I mean, he just has that knack for doing it. And and when when offensive firepower is not going to be your problem, especially with Kyrie and Hayward and Tatum and and, and these guys coming along, uh, I think Smart coming off the bench is is just a little more valuable than. Than Rogier is, and Rogier, I think, is going to be a trade asset. I mean, teams are going to look at him and and he really should like be him. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. considering his age, and this is what just third year. I yeah. mean, he's what yeah. a pick too. Like I didn't think I, I thought I was stunned they took him. Like I, I, I thought R.J. Hunter was the better player that year. And it shows what the hell I know. Of course, I shouldn't be evaluating anybody's <laughs> talent there. That's that's not my. It's why we're sitting behind microphones. That's why we're sitting Maddox. behind microphones. <laughs> All right. All right. Let me finish with this. The um. Uh, the coaching search that that searches, I should say, that are underway right now. As we speak here on on Monday, uh, only the Memphis Grizzlies have hired a head coach. They elevated JB Bickerstaff to uh, full time coach. JB, of course, finished the season last year after taking over uh, for David Fisdale. But we're you know two two and a half weeks removed from the end of the regular season, and there are still. A whole bunch of coaching jobs uh, open out there. The Knicks are still looking for a coach. The Hornets, the Suns, uh, at some point, and maybe by the time people are listening to this podcast, I think the Bucks will be officially open. Uh, are you surprised that they're that the coaching 
market has moved at this kind of glacial pace over the last couple of weeks? I don't know if I would say surprised. I think there's a lot of potential candidates as we look at the people being interviewed and the names that are going to a lot of different places. Uh, I, I think there are very better than competent, but coaches available. And I don't, but I don't know if there's what, like to me, coaching searches, and especially now it's all about fit. It's all about who, who the right guy is for each individual circumstance. And I, I more appreciate the fact that so many of these organizations are doing their due diligence of not just taking the big name or the guy that they think is the hot guy at the time to put in place and actually trying to understand who might be the best for their t- I mean, I, I, who haven't the New York Knicks interviewed? I mean, you look at the list and it's like it, they're going through everyone. But it's it's the the big names that we, of course, hear the Budenholzer and, and Fisdale um, yeah. and Steve Clifford, like those guys that you know about. But I, I like the fact that teams are looking at so many assistant coaches now or even uh, Jerry Stackhouse and, and what he's done um, with the Raptors 905 and just how, how they're kind of looking at different candidates in assistant coaches that might be ready to take on the position. There's some teams that have got, you know, between like Phoenix and if Milwaukee does in fact open up and the Bucks don't retain Joe Prunty, uh, the type of young talent that those teams have. And, and then some other teams that are just looking for a new voice and a change. So I, I, I wouldn't say surprise because I think, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out which candidates best fit, fit with their group. And I don't think there's one coach or one name that it's like, we, we have got to get this guy. He's a can't miss. And, and one thing that, that, you know, some people have speculated that maybe these coaches are waiting on Milwaukee because they they might want to you know be a candidate for that job. That that's really not the case right now. I mean, I think if if Budenholzer was offered the Knicks job, he would take. It. I think a lot of people, if they're offered the Knicks job, would take it because it pays a lot and it's a pretty good job when you look at the talent that's on the roster. Now you got to deal with all the other ancillary you know bullshit that's there with with the ownership and all that stuff, but. Uh, it's it's a very good job. I think that Steve Clifford would take Phoenix if the money was right and he was uh, offered a deal there. So I think these coaches are are kind of poised to jump on, into into some of these jobs, but these jobs just aren't being offered for for whatever reason. And I really can't quite wrap my head around it unless that unless there's somebody else that's going to shake loose, right? Unless like, and I don't think Doc Rivers is leaving LA. I'm I'm pretty sure he's going to be there next year. Uh, I don't know if there's if they're waiting for another domino to fall here i don't even know who would be if that's the case i i don't know and that's a great question but to your point maybe they feel maybe these teams feel like they're the ones who have the leverage in these circumstances and and they know the knicks for example are a job that if they offered it to most of these candidates that they would jump and they would take it so um you know that changes the dynamic a lot than maybe situations we've seen in the past where certain coaching candidates have more of the leverage in those situations you know who can't screw this up though milwaukee really can't screw this up because they look joe prunty is is a good coach and and he's been a a very good assistant for a number of years i watched in game seven sarah a lineup that featured shabazz muhammad jason terry and matthew delavadova all on the floor together all at the same time in in the second half of a game seven in the NBA playoffs. I I don't know what the hell I was looking at out there. I don't think Jason Terry thought he was going to play that many minutes in a game seven. Jason Terry, who hadn't played significant minutes in his game one, 
is out there from the floor. And Shabazz Muhammad, who is like the, it's like pushing the Shabazz Muhammad nuclear button, like try to see if he, you know, can make some threes and, and go off. These guys were playing extended minutes in the second half of a game seven. I, I, I was stunned by that. Uh, Milwaukee's tricky. And for me, they, they were the team I was highest on as an outsider to contend in the East heading into this season, just given, you know, Giannis in what he can do. Um, it'll be interesting. I think they, they go through an overhaul uh, if, if Joe Prunty stays or what of systematically how they play on both ends of the floor. I also think their roster, like uh, given the fact you got a Dedekumpo, I'm a huge fan of Chris Middleton, what he can do. Um, Eric Bledsoe, I think is someone who you kind of figure out how best to put him in the right positions to excel as a point guard in a scoring point guard at that. But, but I think after that, the roster, you take a serious look of, of how you get more shooters to surround a player like a Dedekupo and just what I, I think on top of what they do with their head coaching position, a lot of, of work needs to put into that roster. And they're going to have some decisions as well with Jabari Parker and, and what they do about him. But I think, I think that's a team that there's so much upside and so much potential and in, in moving to the new arena and a lot of the buzz surrounding them. But there's also a lot of gaps to fill. Let me give you an educated guess on who Milwaukee could go after. Oh, as head give coach. me, give me. Let me give yeah. you an educated guess okay. here. Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle has been in Dallas for the last 10 seasons. And the Mavericks are really going nowhere at this point. I mean, they're, they'll have a high draft pick, but they are, you know, at best next season, a team that's clawing uh, their way for a playoff spot. They're, they're probably a team that once Dirk is officially gone in the next year or two, will will go into a complete rebuild uh, down there. Carlisle has coached in that division before. He's been the Pacers coach. He's been the Pistons coach. I, I would, I, you know, you hear some things that he wants to, to, to coach a winner. Um, that, that seems like a great fit for him. A, a, a young team, but not a super young team, a team that's that looks like it might be a piece or two away and a good coach away from being a contender. I I, I don't I don't know if this is if, if any of this has been uh, they've, they've, they've checked in on him or anything like that. But I, I've you hear some some gossip out there about Rick Carlisle and the the Milwaukee. Bucks. You're telling me Rick Carlisle is going to become no, the successor no, not, to no. Jason Kidd. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. That's 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 an interesting way to. To kind of look at it. Hey Jay, but, you want to come? You want to come back and be on my be, staff here in Milwaukee? Or play? You know, he could probably make some shots. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, Carlisle would probably take him back to play. That that's interesting. Mm. I have not been hearing any buzz of those sort. It, it's just people wondering. It's a lot of people out there wondering. You know, does does Carlisle want to be in Dallas? Like in normal circumstances, sure, he'd want to be in Dallas. I mean, he's got good relationships there, and he's basically the coach for life uh, with that that organization. But. Uh, they're in a tricky place right now. They're they're rebuilding. They, you're right and, about that. You're and that's right a long that. time for a coach to be in, in in one city. Ten years is is a long time. He's he's accomplished what he set out to accomplish. They won a championship. Right. Uh, does he want a different challenge? And if he does, Milwaukee makes a lot of sense for him. I I, I like it. Yeah. This... It's I, I was not expecting that to be the name that you were going to say. Were you expecting uh, what was what Mark Jackson? Throw Mark Jackson out there. And, uh, Would not expect that no, either. No, I don't know. I, I'm, I am. I'm, I'm interested. They got a lot of. <laughs> they got a lot of options. They got a lot of options. But I mean, talk about a desirable job. Yeah. 
Yeah, to get to coach Giannis in the formative years of his career. I, I'm a believer, too, that Giannis, like, he's a hard worker, man. Like, I, I oh, watch Giannis and a guy you know, Sean Sweeney, that that, that work hard together all the time. Uh, I think Giannis is going to get a three-point shot. I have people tweeting oh. at me, like, he's been in the league since he was, what's his, like, his fifth year in the league or fourth year in the league, whatever it is, and he hasn't found the jump shot yet, so he's never going to find it. That's just dumb. Like, he's he keeps working. He's going to find that jump shot, and when he does, he's going to be terrifying. That that is dumb, and you're right about that. Because even look how the jumps that he's made season to season, and, and you're right about. I'm close friends with Sean Sweeney, so I hear mm. about the work ethic uh, of Giannis and how good he wants. But like, he is a player who some guys say they want to be the best and they want to be great and they understand greatness and and they don't get it. It's, it's something that they just are going through the motions with. He he is willing to put in the work to get there. And I also think part of his, the development of his shot and his jump shot and three-point shot, like that, that too is a progression. I think a big part of that, and I think it was a smart move, but, but Jason Kidd also, his coaching of him of not just giving him the green light from a three-point line and have him work from the inside out work on your handles work on your ability to put the ball on the floor and so I think for Giannis it's you look at the long view and the big picture of how he continues to grow and get better and I think this summer you're a big part of that is going to be because he's got a, a nice looking shot there's some mm-hmm. guys that just got a janky looking shot that you don't think is going to go anywhere to me Giannis understands he's got a stroke it's not consistent but we do see it go in and i think in time without a doubt that'll get there and i mean man try and stop him when he's got extended range i feel like you using the word janky is a good way to end this this podcast i think that's a solid uh, i I might mark. call your jump shot janky uh, but it is very janky if you can accentuate it at all with an adjective i've never seen say, your jump shot i've never seen you shoot i did my nickname in high school was shooter it was. No, it was not. I went to. I went to my high school oh, reunion my recently. Lies. Was, I do. I. I swear. It, it, it's based entirely on basically a two-game stretch where I made everything, and it was like I think freshman year of high school. And it sounds to me like a tongue-in-cheek. No, type it was. Of well, I mean, I kept shooting and I didn't make it. Like after that, it was not very good. But I had a two-week stretch and. Uh, it was actually branded on me by a parent of one of my teammates in uh, in high school. So, it was, <laughs> oh, then definitely, it's a parent. It, it's a parent of the kid of like, when is this kid gonna stop shooting stop. and pass my son the basketball? He's like, <laughs> exactly. if I start calling you shooter, that means you shoot way too much. Yes, I'd, I'd like to be referred to as shooter. <laughs> a, from here a, on out. a nicer just, name than ball hog. I'll call yeah, you shooter. Yeah, I'll, I'll call you shooter. No, it just sounds weird coming from an adult. That's that's not. That just sounds strange. <laughs> uh, Sarah, you're the best. I appreciate you coming here in studio you uh back on those tnt vr broadcasts yeah week? headed out to houston so i'll be on the rockets jazz game two is we'll the next do, yeah. i know and then after that so we'll get you a headset we don't worry manix yeah, we're, we're gonna get you on board with this send it to the house i'll uh you know in all my many days off i'll sit there and, and, and watch uh, <laughs> watch basketball there uh thanks for joining me sarah i appreciate it thanks for having me chris that's it for this week's episode my thanks to sarah kustak for joining the show as always you can download archived episodes on itunes tune in stitcher really anywhere you can download podcasts while you're there post a comment leave a rating you know i appreciate it and i'll see you next week MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.